Hi, everybody. I'm Shay. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Shay. Um, first of all, thanks, Paul, for asking me to come. Really nice of you. And thanks to Christopher and Stacy for coming with me so I didn't have to do this alone. It's always nice to have support. Um, it's really funny because, like, it's a small group, and I kind of even interacted with you guys before the meeting, and I'd met Paul and, and you before, and I still am just as nervous as I can be. And I was sitting here thinking, why am I so nervous? And I think it's because any time that I'm entrusted with the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's just something I take really seriously. Um, I've been around the rooms for a long, long time, and I know how important it is to um, to hear the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, as it's as it's to me outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I always want to make sure that I pray first and ask God for His guidance, and that I don't get out there all on my own. Um, and since I have 45 minutes, I can, you know, do the long version and not the 10-minute convinced. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, this is a cute little meeting hall, too. It's, it looks like it's got a lot of history and stuff. And um, My first drink was from a baby bottle, and, you know, the weirdest thing is um, what makes that so weird is I actually remember it I was about six months old, my mom said, and I remember the sensation of having the beer in my mouth. I, re- I remember the sensation of wanting more and sucking on the nipple really hard. Um, and that's what I've come to know makes me an alcoholic. I had an adverse reaction to alcohol from the very first time I had it into my body. I liked the way it made me feel. Um, and I literally chased that feeling almost to death. And... Um, my drinking was never glamorous. It was never social. Um, my mother was an alcoholic, um, hence the beer out of a baby bottle. <laughs> um, it's really funny. Her and I had a, had an opportunity a couple years ago to speak together at a conference, and I went first, and I shared about that because that's part of my story. And then she went and explained why she had, had given me the beer out of a baby bottle, and I had never heard it explained before. All I knew is that when I approached her, um, I had to have been a couple of years sober and said, you know, I must have been an alcoholic my whole life because I had this weird dream that I was sucking beer out of a baby bottle, and she shook her head and said it wasn't a dream. And I got a really big resentment towards my mom for that, thinking she had turned me into an alcoholic. And, you know, back then, I, I guess I thought that it was a pretty hideous thing to be an alcoholic like my mom. And come to find out, I was a fretful baby, and that's the only way to get me to sleep. Um, and I still have a hard time sleeping, don't I, honey? <laughs> I just don't have to drink at it today. <laughs> Most of the time I just deal with it. Um, but, you know, what I know now is that my mom did the best that she could with, with the alcoholism that she had and what she had, the experiences that she had prior to being a mom. And that it wasn't her fault I was an alcoholic. I have an adverse real- reaction to alcohol. I have two sisters that grew up drinking the same way that I did, and they're not alcoholics like me. Um, when I drink, something really different happens to me, and I have to have more alcohol. And that was apparent from the very first drink all the way to my very last drink. And um, the craziest part is that I grew up in such a way that it was really easy for me to blame my lifestyle, really easy for me to blame my childhood and my marriage and, you know, all these circumstances in my life. Um, So it was really hard for me to see myself as an alcoholic. Um, I had a lot of tragedy during that 26 years. Um, 
I started coming to AA for the first time for myself when I was 13 years old, pretty much by force in my family life. My mom had gotten sober when I was 11. My first AA meeting was when I was around that same age. My mom was six months, and it was a tradition in our hometown back then that when you're celebrating any kind of milestone that you bring your family and you stand up and you speak for a minute. And we got up there with my mom, and the only thing I could think of to say was that I didn't know my mom was a drunk until she got sober. But what I wasn't saying is that I wasn't all too sure that I liked the change, you know, because all of a sudden we're not drinking anymore, and by that time I was a pretty chronic drinker. Um, I could outdrink most adults in, in our family atmosphere. And there were a lot of adults that were worried about my drinking that were already approaching my mom and saying, this is not healthy. And she's like, oh, she's just a kid, you know, this type of thing. Um, so when I was 11 and mom stopped drinking, it kind of threw a big old monkey wrench in our family life. And um, she went on to marry a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and my whole life really did change then. And when I was 13, it was brought to my attention that I was an alcoholic and I needed to stop drinking. And um, I started going to Alcoholics Anonymous for a while, got a sponsor. Uh, I can't say that I really followed the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I was kind of like a freak show. When I was getting sober at 13 years old, it was very uncommon for teenagers to be sober, but it was even more uncommon for girl teenagers to be sober. So I kind of was like hailed as this, this big oddity. So I started speaking on circuit speakers for young people. And um, what I learned how to do is make my story very dramatic. Because at 13 years old, I didn't fit in with people who drank like you guys drank. And because I needed to be accepted by people in Alcoholics Anonymous, because this is where my mom put me so I could be living in family life with her, um, I knew I didn't fit in, so I started exaggerating my story and, and glamorizing um, a lot of the things that I did. And this went on for about 11 months, and then I secretly, behind my mom's back, relapsed. And I tried to hide it from her, and my sister told on me, and I got busted. And thank God she did, because I overdosed that night, and she found me. And if my sister hadn't told on me, my mom probably wouldn't have found me, and I'm not sure if I'd be here today. Um... When my mom got over the initial worry, she uh, got very, very angry with me because I had snuck around behind her back and relapsed. And I started developing my resentment towards Alcoholics Anonymous right then. I started looking at the personalities and not the principles. And I started seeing that the way that my mom was operating her program had to be the way Alcoholics Anonymous was. And I just didn't like it. I didn't like her control. I didn't like how I was being punished for relapse, yet she had relapsed two years before. And, you know, she had all this love and support. Now I'm the outcast of the family again. And I got carted off to treatment for the first time when I was 14. And back then they didn't have adolescent rehab centers. Um, so I went to an adult facility and had to follow the adult program. And I was very rebellious for like the first three weeks. And then I finally got it. Something clicked in me. And what had happened was... For three weeks, I was, I was in this same routine as all the adults around me, again, not identifying with anyone. And um, they had run out of the material for me. So they had decided to put me in this room by myself and let me listen to speaker CDs or tapes back then. And I heard a young lady named June G. And I don't know if any of you have heard of her. There was a documentary that was done about Alcoholics Anonymous about six years ago, and she was one of the people that was profiled. She's been sober for a long, long time. 
And the thing that really was remarkable to me about that was that she was 14 when she got sober, which was the same age I was at the time. And she was nine years old the first time she tried to commit suicide. And I was nine years old the first time I tried to commit suicide. And for the first time in my life, I identified with someone. And so I started getting with the program, and I started trying to commit to the program because I had that identification. Bill W. talks about it as having weight and depth, and he talked about it when Ebby came. And he knew that Ebby had been really, really drunk, and he had been the same kind of drunk as him, and somehow he had come out of it, and it must be religion. And it was kind of that same experience. It's like, okay, if you did it, I can do it. And I, I did go on to get sober. And I went back to the same home life, and I, I didn't stick. Um, I actually I didn't drink. That's not what caused me to get kicked out. I rebelled against the, the same things going on in my family life. And as a result of my behaviors, I was kicked out when I was 14. And it was the first time I became homeless. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going to, like, fast forward because, you know, there's a lot of things in that next 12 years. And the reason why I went into depth there is because I had to, when I got sober... I had to learn how to get past the resentments I had towards Alcoholics Anonymous in order for me to recover, and that kind of comes into play later. For the next 12 years, I did spend going in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but from the time I was 15 to 20, I was actually raising children. I had my first baby when I was 16, and I had my last baby when I was 20. So I was 20 years old with three small children when my marriage ended, and um, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about that. I'll just say this. My kids wound up in three separate homes being raised by three separate people. And it wasn't the most favorable environments for my children to be raised. And I literally fell into the bottle, and I didn't come back out for six years. Um, the only time I did get any kind of clarity whatsoever is I'd hit a bottom, and I'd go running to Alcoholics Anonymous because I knew that Alcoholics Anonymous could clean me up for a while. Um, but I still didn't think I was an alcoholic. I still thought I just had had a really messed up life and really bad circumstances, and if my mom had been a better mom or if my real dad had been there to take care of me, this type of thing. I was the terminal victim. Um, when I was 26 years old, my drinking was already in such a state that I was homeless again. I was unemployable. Um, sometimes I'd come and park on my ex-husband's couch just long enough to like take a shower maybe drink some of his beer for a while, and then I'd be right back out there again because I divorced my ex-husband for a reason. <laughs> I didn't like him, so, you know, it's hard to hang around with him. Um, plus, the other thing was I didn't want my children seeing me in that state. All I could remember is how my mom was towards me when she was drunk, and I just didn't want to put my kids through that. And that's the way I justified it was that my kids didn't need to see me that sick, but I still didn't think I was alcoholic. Um, the very end of my drinking, three weeks before my miracle happened, I had been at my ex-husband's house, and I woke up that I actually came to that morning, and much was the tradition. I went running for the refrigerator, opened the door, popped the top on the beer, and I turned around and looked, and there's my little girl, and I had shoved her out of the way to get to the refrigerator. And she was 11 at the time, and when she was 5 years old, I had my drinking was already so bad that she had made me promise that I'd never drink again. So the look in her eyes was just pure horror. One, I hadn't seen her in a long time because my drinking was every single day, every waking moment by that time. I just couldn't stop. 
I didn't know that when I drank, it produced a craving that made me have to have more alcohol. And then when I drank more alcohol, I had to have more alcohol. I, I had no idea that that was going on with me. I just thought I was trying to cover up my problems, which that was a big part of it. You know, our disease is mental, physical, and spiritual. Um, but the physical part, I didn't, I thought that was something that was just covering up the other symptoms. So anyway, when that happened, I kind of got it in the back of my head. And the next really big event, and this actually happened the night, um, just a few hours before my miracle, my sister was taking me to a place. She did line dancing. I don't know if you guys have heard. It's the Western line dancing where you're all dancing in a line together. And she was a professional at it. And she was taking me to her training session. And she told me, she says, look, she's like, if you show your ass today, I'm never taking you again. And I thought, well, why would she say that to me, you know? <laughs> why would she say that to me? And I was over at her house that afternoon, and, and what I do remember of that day, because I was, I was, by this time I'm a blackout drinker, and there's not much of that last two and a half years that I do remember that's not really, really substantial to my bottom. Um, I remember that I was smoking a cigarette at the time, and I had accidentally burnt my sister's best friend's little boy's face. And when I went to console him, the mother stood barrier between us and protected her son from me. And it, was, it broke my heart. And I started to kind of see what other people were seeing about me because I just did not know it was that bad. Um, so when my sister told me that night, look, if you show your ass tonight, you're not coming in anymore, I'm like, why is everybody ganging up on me? You know, the terminal victim. Don't you understand? Well, I did show my ass that night. And from what I understand, being in and out of a blackout, it was pretty hideous. And it was enough to where my sister didn't even speak to me. She wouldn't drop me off at my normal park bench. I have a park bench that I lovingly call Bertha. That was my home off and on for that time. I would just go run into that park bench. <laughs> she wouldn't even drop me off there that night because she was scared of how drunk I was. So she took me back to my ex-husband's house, which really made me mad. Because uh, I wanted to party some more. You know, I wasn't done. So I get to his house, and I manipulate him out of $5. Back then, beer wasn't very expensive. For another 12-pack of beer, and um, I take his car. And I take off. And I was in a blackout when I left his house, and I came to at a convenience store. And I was walking from the car, which was at the gas pumps, to the convenience store, and I was staggering. And then I blacked out. And then I came back, and I have the 12-pack, and I'm walking back to the car, and I'm staggering, and I thought, why did they just sell me beer? I'm shit-faced right now. And it was like one of those moments of clarity. And then I go into a blackout. Next, time, next thing I come to, I'm driving, and I wake up because I've, I've scrubbed the guardrail going on, on one of our highways at home. And I come to thinking, oh, my God, I'm drunk. I need to pull over. I black out again. I scrub the guardrail again sometime later. And I wound up, um, I got into an altercation with a guy that I had been dating off and on at the time. It was actually just a drinking buddy. Um, and when I left his house, I was determined to kill myself. And suicidal tendencies are a huge part of my story, and they'll come into play later. But this time was a little different. This time I didn't think about my kids. Um, and there was a specific regimen I had to go through. So I was in the process of this whole thing, and I came to a T intersection, and I went to stop, and I thought, hold on, wait a minute. That's an easier way, because there's nothing but pine trees ahead of me. And I let my foot off the brake and slammed my foot on the gas pedal and went straight through the intersection. Then the car turned, the wheel went crazy, broke my thumb, and I landed between two pine trees without a mark on the car except where I'd scrubbed the guardrail. 
And I got out of the car and I was pissed. I was like, why won't I just die? And by the time I got to the end of the bumper, all of a sudden I just realized that it was a miracle and that God had a purpose in my life and that's when my miracle happened. And I know that without that act of providence on God's part, I know that I wouldn't be sober. There was no way that in that moment prior to that happening that I would have said that I was an alcoholic. There's just no way. Alcohol was not my problem. Living was my problem. And that's what happened to me on the side of the road that day. And all of a sudden, I was ready for whatever was going to come. I knew that my life had just changed. As a matter of fact, when I, I hitched a ride with somebody up to the store and I called my sister Collect, it was like 4 o'clock in the morning by this time, and she's like, Shay, I knew it. You don't understand. Me and Mom have been waiting for the police to call saying you're dead or in jail. I'm like, well, I'm going to jail. And by this time, the highway patrolman comes up, and I'm just I'm cradling the phone. I got my, it was me, you know. <laughs> it was me. I'm not going to deny it anymore. And that was different, too. Um, and I wish I could say that that was my last drunk, but I'm really glad that it wasn't. Because that was on a Wednesday night slash Thursday morning. Friday night um, was my last drunk. And the oddest thing, my whole entire sobriety, I've always said the same thing about that last drunk, and it was that... I had intentionally had my last farewell to alcohol. But the truth of the matter was, I had no intentions of drinking that night. My miracle had just happened. The beer came by me, I opened it up, and I drank it before I even thought about it. Then it was going to be my last farewell. And what happened that night was that I drank for the first time seeing myself as an alcoholic. I never got high that night. I can't tell you how much I drank. I can tell you that my drinking and drug use that night was hideous. Um, I've never even seen anybody drink and drug like that. I would literally go up and down the bar, and I'd be drinking whatever was on the bar. And at one point, I grabbed a long neck beer bottle, poured it down. There was a cigarette butt. I spit out the cigarette butt and kept drinking the beer. Now, when I saw myself do that, I'm like, there's, there's really something wrong with you. There's really something wrong with the way you drink. And that was the last time that I drank. My moment of clarity was at 6.30 the next morning when I finally got some random ride back to my ex-husband's house. And I was standing there looking at his mobile home that was infested with cockroaches and he was a hoarder. And I was going, I would rather do that than keep drinking. I just cannot keep drinking. And that was the, that was the last thing I remember until later on that night my sister took me to my first meeting. And in that first meeting was, it was on the fourth step, and the only word I got out of it was fearless, and I could not understand for the life of me how I was going to be fearless because I was terrified that first night. And I was going through DTs, and I was refusing medical treatment. My mom was worried about me. By this time, you know, she's married to a doctor, so she knows all this stuff about detox. And I was just like, leave me alone. God save me. It's going to work this out for me. And little did I know how true that was. Um... I can tell you this, that there have been so many times when I've rebelled against this program. So many times when I've rebelled against that big book. So many times when I absolutely was not going to conform to those steps. And it's just, it's just the, the grace of God that I've survived it. Um, I, I got into the rooms and I didn't drink. Um, I stopped coming to meetings when I was three years sober. And the reason why was because I was then convinced that Alcoholics Anonymous didn't really work because I almost relapsed when I was 14 months sober and I was flying around on a pink cloud and everything was going great and how could I just order a drink and not even realize it until it was sliding across the bar at me, sitting in an airport at Detroit and just like, oh my gosh. And to me that meant that Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work, obviously, because I was about to drink. 
So I started going to church, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I found a lot of spiritual grace in church, and I learned about grace during that period of my life. But there came that problem that could not be solved in church. And um, I was living in a failing marriage, and I was desperate, and I started planning a relapse. And my mom, who is 13 years sober, more sober than me, said to me along the way, when I'd spent that two and a half years not going to meetings, Shay, if you ever get to a point where you need a drink, why don't you just go to one meeting? And I just cast it off as her, you know, trying to control me some more and, you know, trying to control how I live my program. And, you know, I wasn't going to do it until I started planning that drunk. And I can't even say that I was afraid of the drunk. What I can say is my mom's voice came in my head that said, you promised me one meeting. That was it. And I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go show you in one meeting that it doesn't work. So I didn't go that night. I went the next night. And when I did, it was on the family afterwards, and it was talking about marital problems. And I knew that God had worked in my life again, and I've never stopped coming to meetings since. Um, I can't say that I fell in love with the program right away, but what I can say is that I did realize that I had a huge resentment against Alcoholics Anonymous and that if I was going to sober up emotionally, I had to learn how to put that aside. And... um, I went through the next few years. That marriage did wind up ending about five, six years after that. And by the time it ended, I was pretty sick emotionally. And I didn't realize that I had become very codependent in the marriage, and I had kind of substituted alcohol for food and him. And I had to learn how to live by the principles of the program, and I didn't know how. I had never gone completely through the steps. I'd never shown, and no one had ever shown me the steps in the big book. And the truth was, I didn't want that. I I didn't attract those people to me. I wanted to just not drink, and then my life get better. Um, And then, lo and behold, I had one more really big near miss with alcohol, and this time I actually had the beard in my mouth, and a friend who knew about me slapped it out of my mouth. And um, I got a bloody lip out of it, and I got a spiritual awakening out of it. I went to my knees that night, and I thought I, I asked God directly. I was pissed. I was pissed at God. I was pissed at the program. I was pissed at myself. And I said to God, why in the hell, after everything that I've seen in the last 11 years, would I drink, of all things? And the thought was very clear to me that I thought that if I drank and hit a bottom strong enough that I'd pick up the spiritual side of this program. And three weeks later, the sponsor came into my life that changed my life forever. Um, His name is Diz Titcher. He is a historian on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He actually goes all over the world speaking about the big book itself. And he he really is kind of like a proclaimed authority. And he he became my sponsor by accident because I never would have picked a man's sponsor. That, That just was against what I believed in. So what he told me was, I don't sponsor women. I sponsor alcoholics who happen to be women. And let's just get that straight. And what attracted me to him is when I met him, he had eight women on the front row with him. He's this older gentleman, grandfatherly type, and they're all like his grandchildren. And they're all happy, and they're all joyous, and they're all sober, and they're all free. And I suddenly wanted what they had. And that's all I asked him. How did they do that? He's like, well, when I sponsor, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't ask you to be my sponsor. And he's like, well, you just did. When you asked me to help you through the steps, you just asked me to be your sponsor. Because that's what a sponsor does. And I went, oh, (laughs) okay. And I got to tell you, at first I was really put off by it. 
But what he showed me, he gave me worksheets that were straight out of the big book. There was no intellectual exercise. And he told me, he says, if you're doing the steps off the wall, you've got an off-the-wall program. He said the program is outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, and if you want to get emotionally sober, you're going to find your program in there. And these worksheets just broke it down to me. And that's how I sponsor girls now, is with these worksheets. And the spiritual awakening is inevitable, as promised in the 12th step, when you do them that way. I actually started to fall in love with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because, you know, it's outlined also in the first pages of the big book that it's the textbook for living. And I'm a scholar at heart. You give me a textbook and I'll learn. And and that's who I've always been. Um, I... I Got to the fourth step in that place. Well, the first time with my second step, I thought I wouldn't have a problem with it because I've always believed in God. My grandmother had instilled in me when I was a little girl that Jesus loves me no matter what. Um, in the second step, I found out that we all have that fundamental idea of God, but it's covered up by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. So I had blocked my relationship with God. And the other part of the biggest part of the second step was. Um, do I now believe or am I willing to believe that there's a power greater than myself? And I have to honestly say that at the time, no. I was my own power. I was completely self-reliant. I was not reliant on God. I didn't rely on him for anything. And so when I had to answer that question from that viewpoint instead of do you believe in God, it was a much different, much, much different experience for me. And when I went on to do the third step, what I was told was um, this very sternly said to me, um, I want you to sit down and not say a word. Because I was arguing with him. So I did. I sat down and I didn't say a word. He said, when you go to walk into a place, I want you to pause for a second. Put your hand on the door. Don't open it yet. And let God go first. And that's how I learned how to rely on my higher power. Was just wait and let God go. And it was a very simple exercise that grew into what I have today, which is really phenomenal. That first four step blew me away. When I saw it outlined by the structure in the big book, I thought, wow. The only other fourth step I'd ever done was a 30-page bibliography where I blamed everybody in my life for every single thing that had ever gone wrong. So this was much different, looking at myself, looking at how I reacted to situations. But there was another thing, too, is it started showing me that I could do something about me, you know. Another thing about the third step was... um, that's when I started to understand about the selfishness and the self-centeredness that comes along with my disease. He took me to pages 60 to 63, and he had me underline every single form of self that was in there. Me, I, self, self-centered. And by the time I was done, I got 28. You got 23, right? Mm-hmm. And he asked me, he says, so, he says, having done that, what's your problem? Me, self. And it was pretty powerful going into, because it says you launch you know, into the next dimension and, and the fourth step. And it was pretty powerful because then it was it was a more moral, personal inventory. It's like, okay, let me look at how I affected life. When I got through that, I was able to address my old beliefs and old ideas about Alcoholics Anonymous. What I was able to figure out was that I really had thought that my parents were involved in a brainwashing scheme <laughs> that they called AA. And I had used my old ideas and my old principles to block me from having my own relationship with the program. And, you know, my parents did the best they could with what they had. And not everybody works their program the same way. I don't work my program the way they work their program, and we still get along great. Um, 
what happened behind that is I was able to slowly grow my own relationship with, with Alcoholics Anonymous and the people in it. And it was a really big lesson for me in, in principles about personality. And I robbed myself of a lot of years of emotional sobriety out of that resentment. You know, it talks about in the big book that, you know, we rob ourselves of the sunlight of the spirit. And I know that for a fact. I've actually been in situations where I'm eat up with, with resentment and I make amends and the resentments are gone and there go, there go the character defects right behind them. And then I can feel closer to God. And it's just been through things like that that I've been able to grow and grow and grow to the person I am today. Um, in my fifth step, I was really appalled. <laughs> my sponsor had suggested someone to listen to my fifth step who, one, was a man, and two, I never liked him. <laughs> and I'm like, I argued with him for a minute. I did. I'm like, but why can't I pick my own person? He says, are you going to follow directions? And he knew that I would pick someone who would feel sorry for me. And he knew that I would fix, pick someone who would commiserate with me and dramatize this with me. So he picked someone that he knew wouldn't do that, that he knew was just the program and that would help me with my character defects. So I called this man, and I said, I've been advised to ask you if you'd listen to my fist step. And he goes, oh, wait a minute. I've never listened to a woman's fist step before, and I'm not sure, blah, blah, blah. So he calls my sponsor and gives him a good word of prayer, and my sponsor finally talks him into it. Next thing you know, a week later, he's at my house, and I'm giving him my fist step. And what I learned was that I was willing to go to any lengths to get this thing at that point. And when I give my, give my fist step to him, I didn't hold anything back. I was surprised. I really thought that I would hold those intimate little details back, and I didn't. And um, when, when we were all done, wow, when we were all done, we were sitting on my couch, and he grabbed my hand, and he says, when, when I leave here, he said, I want you to take an hour, and I want you to really sit and think, and I want you to look at the first five prospects, and I want you to think, have I missed anything? He's like, and then it says, take your book off the shelf and knock the dust off. And I said, well, there's no dust on my book now. <laughs> there may have been before, but I opened it a lot. And, you know, he says, go to those five, first five proposals and make sure you haven't missed anything. And um, he got choked up. And he, he says, and then I want you to get on your knees, and I want you to thank God for the opportunity to have him gotten closer to him. And it just broke me down. All of a sudden, I could see the program. I could actually see it. And it was one of the most beautiful things that's ever happened to me in my program. And when he left my house that day, I called Diz and thanked him for, for recommending that that happen. Because to me, it wasn't about the misery anymore. It wasn't about being a victim anymore. It wasn't about, you know, who can I impress with my tragedy. It was the principles of the program. And um, my sixth step was a little different because I made my list of all my character defects. And in my list, my person who had listened, and this is another reason why Diz picked Wallace, the person who had listened to my big book, or my fifth step, knew how to look for some of the character defects that I could pick up on. So I had a list of 28 character defects, and he added three to them. And I just never even knew. I never knew that I was hypervigilant, that I was sitting and watching, waiting for things to go bad. And I never knew that I was possessive. What? Possessive? What do you mean possessive? And that I had the knack for retaliation. Had no idea. I, I really would have... But when he said it, I was like, oh, yeah. And I would have missed it if it hadn't been Wallace listening to my fist up. He knew how to help me with that. Then he asked me later on, Diz asked me later on, if there was anybody that was in that fourth and fifth step that I was not willing to give my amends to. And I said, yes, there are three people. And he said, you put those three on the top of your list and you start praying for them. So I did. So I got back to my sixth 
stuff, and I had all my character defects listed, and I was in the mountains in Colorado, which is where I grew up. I was in Colorado Springs, and I had gone quietly off by myself, and I dug myself a little hole beneath a rock, and I'm talking to God, and I'm like, God, I'm ready for you to remove all these defects in character. They're not useful to me anymore, you know, all this other stuff. I'd learned about the misuse of instincts, and I was a survivalist, so I had to use some of these instincts. Now I don't need them anymore. So I buried my little torn-up character defects in this hole, and I'm thinking I'm just going to be rid of them. The next day, I'm lying like an ass. <laughs> I'm lying all over the place. I want to steal something. So I call my sponsor, and I'm like, dude, what's up with that? And he says, did you really think you could remove your character defects by burying them in a hole in the mountain somewhere? And I'm like, well, yeah. And he's like, no, you missed the whole point of the step. You have to be re- entirely ready, which means you have to be ready to suffer the consequences of losing those character defects, which means you got to grow up a little bit. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> so then the next part of being humbly, you know, I didn't get the seventh step. I had to be completely honest until I moved here. And what I've learned about the seventh step is that um, I am one of those people coming out of being a survivalist my whole life that's fiercely independent and completely self-reliant. And it was very hard for me to rely on a power greater than myself. It was really okay for me to say, yes, I'm willing to, to turn my will and my life over, but, God, I think you need me to do this, and you need me to do that, and I should probably do this for you and do that for you. I had the hardest time asking for help. And someone finally pointed out to me that that's kind of the basis of humility, is not being affected by criticism or praise and learning how to ask for help, which means I have to learn how not to be so self-reliant. And I've had a real struggle with that. I still sometimes have a hard time with that, and the sponsor that I have now has got me into a routine where I have to routinely do it. Either I have to email her, text her, or call her when I'm in trouble. And she's trying to get me to do it like when I'm in trouble and not a week later when I fix the problem. That was the other thing. It's like, oh, by the way, I fixed this, so let me just tell you about it. No, I'm in trouble right now. Help me. And the thing that I'm finding is that as I ask her for direction, she's got really good stuff. She's got really good ways for me to recover. And I don't have to do this by myself anymore, which is great because, like, it was getting really tiresome. My little shoulders were aching from the, the, you know, someone else said to me, you know, you ought to give the cross back. Jesus needs it. (laughs) You know, it's... Wow, (laughs) that was a big one. Um, The eighth step um, changed my life, I think. Um, I've also been one of those people that's ultra-responsible, and when I got sober, I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt for what I did to my kids. And not all of it was solved in, in, in making living amends or direct amends to my children, even though they forgave me. Um... I've changed myself as a person. God's changed me as a person, but I still had that place where I just felt so ultimately responsible for so many people's pain. And I was doing my eighth step, um, my most recent eighth step was about four or five years ago, where I actually did, you know, and I was on relationships. And um, I had all these people on this huge eighth list, and she knew about what's going on in my life, and she was having me, like, spell out what each person meant you know as far as the amends that I needed to make and by the time we were done there was only like four people on the list out of 33 and what she helped me to understand is that I was trying to take responsibility even for people how people felt about me and if I tried to please the whole entire world I'm never going to measure up and I felt myself grow up a little bit and the other thing I learned from the eighth step is that place of forgiveness where you start walking upright in in God's society with with mankind and 
usually that happens like between the fifth and sixth step where it talks about walking through the arch, you know, as a free man. That didn't happen for me until the eighth step this last time. And I started finally feeling it, you know, finally starting to feel like, you know, I'm just as upright as anyone else. And I'm not responsible for how you felt about the way I acted. I'm just responsible for the way I acted. I didn't know that before then. Um, the rest of the steps, I have to be honest with you, I joined, I'm an active member of Al-Anon, I joined Al-Anon um, four years ago, and a lot of my amends that I've made, I've made the direct amends that were on my, on my list. The three people that made it to my list that I refused initially to make amends to, I had very specific reasons why. And my sponsor at the time, who was Diz, didn't tell me I had to do it, but he did quote out of the big book, what happens to us if we're not willing to make amends to them all. And I, I wound up working through what he suggested, and I did become willing to make amends to them all. And what I noticed was one of the biggest experiences I've had with making direct amends was with my stepfather. My stepfather came into my life when I was 12 years old, and um, he was my mother's husband for... Uh, they were they were legally married for 23 years. He was a part of our life for 33 years. And I had a lot of resentment towards the way he handled us kids, um, especially me being an alcoholic and the judgment that I took and a lot of things that happened in my family and feeling like he came between me and my mom and things like that. So I really didn't feel like I owed him an amends. I felt like he owed me one. It was one of those. And my sponsor was able to gently, which was really ironic because he was a hard ass, he was able to gently show me that I was responsible for my behavior. No matter who, who was doing anything to me, I'm always responsible for my behavior. And I was able to look back and see where I'd alienated him. I'd talked crap about him. I'd tried to turn the family against him. Um, I'd tried to turn Al- Al- Alcoholics Anonymous members against him because we are all part of the same home group. And I had to make amends for that. And I had to stand tall and I had to face him across from him. And I lived in North Carolina at the time. He lived in New Mexico. So I actually flew to New Mexico and made an appointment with him and met with him to do the amends. And I was scared half out of my mind. And I still had part of that thing where I was like, I don't owe him this much amends. Then the other part was like, but you want to be clean of this. You want to be sober from this. So when I sat across from him and and I grabbed his hand and I made an amends to him, when I was all done and I was very specific, I had it all written out on an index card, he looked at me and he says, you know, if anybody should make amends, it should be me for what I did to you when you were 12. And I was shocked by it. I was like, whoa. And it was like another place where the, the program and examples of it in the big book just came shotting out at me. You know, wow, he took responsibility. The next day I was in Denver, Colorado, and I was, I was like really like affected by it. And I remember being really emotional. I looked up and I was like, God, you know, I start praying about it. And all of a sudden, all the character defects that were tied with that resentment were just gone. They just left me. And I felt them leave me. Some of the possessiveness, some of the retaliation. And I felt myself becoming a different person. He just recently passed. And I can tell you that the woman that I've grown into was able to, after that amends, still, even though he kept trying to draw me into relationships that weren't healthy for me, and I don't mean anything ugly, I just mean that he was very possessive and he was very controlling, and I finally had to get to a point where I had to stop being in relationship with him. And um, when I made the decision, he tried to reach out to me a year ago, 
And I made the decision because I couldn't take the roller coaster ride anymore. And when he first died, it was, it was a tragic accident. And all of a sudden, I was like, but wait a minute. I didn't let him talk to me a year ago. Oh, no. He died, and I was angry at him. And that's, that was my first impression. And after really looking at it and after really examining it, what I found out was that he didn't die with me angry with him. And the reason why I didn't talk to him was out of self-care. I couldn't do the relationship anymore. And I consulted my God and my sponsor and my husband, and I prayed about it, and it wasn't a snap decision. And it was something I did to take care of myself, and I did it out of love. I never denied him love. So once I realized that, I was able to, within the next couple days, see everything beautiful that he's ever given me in my life. My love for literature, my love for learning, my love for classical music. These things that I wouldn't have otherwise had, had my real father been my influence my whole life. My real father is in my life now, has been for eight years, and he's slowly dying. (laughs) It's been for a long time. And I'm a strong daughter for him. And I don't, you know, I have moments where I feel like he's being selfish and he's being an ass, and I just wish he'd stop and be my dad. And one of those moments was the night that David died. I called him just to tell him I loved him, and he said, well, I wish God would have taken me instead of him. And, And I'm like, whoa. You know, and I'm like, Daddy, I love you. And that's all I could say to him. You know, and the next day he called apologizing. It's the first time in my whole life he's apologized to me. And that's what happens when I've learned how to be upright and when I've learned how to take responsibility for my actions and not blame and judge and criticize. And that was my ninth step. My tenth step I do out of the big book. You know, it's clearly defined. It starts on page 86 and it goes all the way up to 88. And I'm back into a daily regimen with that now. It says, you know, when we retire at night, and there's specific questions that I answer every night in my journal, and then I say thank you to God. used to be a gratitude list, and now I'm like, God, I want to thank you that I saw this today or that I saw that today. And this is also increasing my um, relationship with God. And then the other one is um, upon awakening. And what my sponsor has me doing now is in the form of a prayer where I'm actually saying, upon awakening, I'm going to ask you, God, to direct my thinking. I'm asking you that you help me let it be divorced of. And it's changing everything to the point to where I was really shook up again about my stepfather. And all of a sudden, the other day, I was coming home, and I was all by myself. And I just started talking to God the same way I would have talked to Christopher. And I felt like God was listening. And there's been so much clarity in my life lately. And I think that my message to give when I'm asked and entrusted with this message is that through all this, I didn't drink. I don't know why I didn't, except God. And I just kept coming back. Emotional sobriety was hard for me. It was elusive, and I didn't think I'd ever have it. And six years ago, I tried to commit suicide. And I was sober. Um, and what I learned past that is that I had some more work to do inside to become emotionally sober. And I did it. And the person that I am today, um, I can tell you I came from a park bench, and now I'm a scholar. And I came from a park bench, and now I'm upright. I came from a drunk, and now I'm leading by example. That I know would not have been possible through my own power. Even through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the way I was trying to do it, I was, I was crashing my life. And, you know, my kids will tell you they love me dearly. But they said, you know, every now and then, Mom, you'd just lose your mind. You would just lose your mind. <laughs> and we'd just, like, get away from you, you know. And um, it was true. I just, I would control it and control it and control it. And then I just couldn't. And then I would just blow up. 
So um, for me, I'm a true advocate of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. The first 164 pages outline the program. Um, it's very valuable. The fellowship's very valuable. Meetings and service, unity. But the program itself is outlined in the first 164 pages and, you know, the preface and the forewords and, you know, the doctor's opinion. Um, very, very important doctor's opinion showed me about my, my physical disease and the phenomenon of craving. Um, I don't bulk at any of my experiences now. I, I don't complain about what happened to me in my life or the things that I produce because a lot of my time when I was not emotionally sober, I was creating hell in my life and didn't know it. I had no idea that I was creating so much chaos. I did not know that I was addicted to chaos until I started quieting my life down and I had a hard time with the quiet. I literally had a hard time sitting still. And I had luckily the right person in my life that could help me understand you're addicted to chaos. And it might take you some time to learn how to sit still. And I had my sponsor tell me just two days ago that she knows that I've taken the third step thoroughly because I'm serene now. Never heard anybody but my stepdad David tell me that my whole life. And the other time that he told me was when I was 14, just got out of treatment. And he saw it in me, but my mom didn't. So I will say this, this program will give you everything you want. But you have to want being emotionally sober more than anything else. Just like I had to want to not drink more than anything else. There were times that I literally wanted to drink so bad to solve my problems, but I knew it wasn't an option. And I lived with my problem being sucky and my life hurting for a while. To be emotionally sober, I've had to do things that I wasn't ready to do before. I had to go to intensive outpatient treatment for trauma healing from growing up the way that I did. I never wanted to do that before. I'm tough. I can take it. I've had to learn how to face those facts. And it was pretty... It was pretty eye-opening. Um, I've had to learn how to be an active member of Al-Anon and learn how to mind my own business and just keep my side of the street clean and not his. That was a big deal for me. I'm a control freak. I don't like that. <laughs> but I want it more than anything. I want emotional sobriety more than anything. And I work really hard at it. I probably overwork a program. And I'll close with this. Um, they say, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And I, I have learned, especially this last six years, that our pathway is outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I spent a lot of time following sponsors around that weren't in the big book, and I was not truly following that path. I know a big book sponsor when I meet a big book sponsor, and for me, that's where the program is. When I sponsor young ladies, we have our big book out. Uh, it's not about me. I'm just a flashlight. That's it. I'm just a searchlight helping you see the path that I've found through the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I think that it's taken on a whole new meaning that rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path, our path being that that's outlined by Bill and Dr. Bob in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks again for letting me come. I really, really enjoyed this. So thanks, guys. Thank you, Shane. Thank you.